The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter begins with a highly impulsive kiss bestowed on Gyrios by Eridine at the bottom of the chain diving shaft. Harald doesn't get anything quite so nice, but he does achieve level 5 and rolls exceptionally well, especially with his hit points. This is where the party's luck seems to dry up, however. Once all the members are safely in the lower mines, they continue their search for the missing great-granddaughter of Clenneth Stonecarver, but Ursulith is nowhere to be found. They do find someone, many someones, in fact. The companions happen across the surviving members of the second force to enter the mines after Augerstone and his initial group of soldiers failed to return. Harl breaks the news to Tarek Slinghitch, their captain, that their reinforcements are all dead. Since no further help can be expected, it's up to those who remain to take the fight to the enemy. The alternative would be to risk losing Thangar altogether, and so the party, along with Tarek's company of dwarves, heads deeper into the mine, ready to risk it all to save the Citadel. They must first pass a scene of awful violence in the place where Augerstone's force was overcome and later Tarek's dwarves had been forced to retreat. Once across, they climb into the breach and then the tunnel beyond that has been carved from the rock by the Ankegs. At the end of the tunnel, they find themselves in the colony's food storage cavern and it is full of their dead brethren, including Chief Augerstone. The place is also full of weird purple mushrooms which are covered with little puckered suckers. When Eridine tries to cross the room, the suckers open and emit an ear-piercing scream. Chapter 58, Part 1, Day 70, Late Night. Party Status, Harl, 34 of 34 hit points. Gyrios, 33 of 33. Eridine, 18 of 18. Umura, 23 of 23. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person, Levitate, Knock, and Lightning Bolt. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds, times two, Hold Person, and Bless. That's done it now, yelled Tarig. They'll be coming like we rang the dinner bell, shouted Garrett above the din. Harl readied his axe. Brace yourselves! Here they come! Mazagar, defend us! It was Gyrios, using a spell to bless them. 
All eyes were on the hole across the cavern, high up the wall and near the ceiling. Gritting their teeth, they waited for some massive horror to come spilling through, but nothing did. Then, all at once, the shrieking mushrooms fell silent, and somehow the tension became even worse. Still, nothing came. The only sound was the sound of their breathing. They looked at each other, perplexed. What in Grunemog's name is going on? breathed Tarl. Tarig returned a blank look and a shrug. Then Eredine took a gingerly step forward. The mushrooms did not resume their shrill alarm. She took another, then another, this time boldly. It appeared that the fungi would not be triggered again. She walked directly across the cavern, passing dozens of the weird phallic mushrooms before reaching the other side. The others just watched as the lithe rogue looped the coil of rope over her head and put an arm through so that it crossed her chest diagonally. Then she put her hands on the cavern wall, found a knob or a crack, and lifted herself off the floor. Within a minute, she was 15 feet up, clinging to the wall like a spider. Carefully selecting a new foothold, she pushed up yet further. Thieves have the special ability to climb walls. This is something Eredin has not yet done in the game, so I'm excited that she has the chance to help the party now. It's true that Umura has her levitate spell, but it's probably a good idea to save spells until they're truly needed, and here it probably won't be. Even low-level thieves have a pretty good chance of success at this skill. For Eredine, who is a fifth-level thief, the chance of success is 91%. If she fails, she will fall, and if that occurs, the fall will take place halfway to the opening, which in this case is 20 feet up the wall. It's a fairly safe bet, but let's see what the dice say. The roll. I've got a 37. There was a collective gasp as Eredin's foot slipped, and for a split second, it seemed she must come crashing down. But her fingers maintained their grip, and Eredin quickly found her footing once again. A few minutes later, she was all the way up. Garrett was staring at her slack-jawed. If she had sprouted wings and flown up, it would have seemed no less impossible to him. Did I really just see that? He wondered aloud. Eredin perched bird-like at the lip of the hole 40 feet up the back wall of the cavern and peered into the darkness beyond. When she turned back to the party, she made a snaking motion with her hand to indicate that the tunnel wound away and out of sight. They watched her unshoulder the coil of rope and throw down one end. As there was nothing to tie it to, she held her end two-handed and stepped on it for good measure. Umura would have to be the first to climb up, as she was the only one whose weight Eredin could bear. Strong as she was, a dwarf or a human in metal armor would simply be too much to handle on her own. Umura was awkward with the rope, but made it safely up eventually. The Shriekers remained still as Migi and Hidari, the archers and also the lightest of the dwarves, went up next. Gyrios followed. Finally came all the others, clad in their heavy plate and mail. It took a full hour to get everyone to the top. Unfortunately, by then Gyrios' blessing spell had expired. On the other hand, they felt lucky that nothing had come to harass them while they were exposed and vulnerable in the tunnel opening. Once Harl had coiled his rope and replaced it in his bag, the warband made their way further into the Ankeg's lair. Like the first tube-like tunnel, this one was scored by the creature's mandibles. It was inconsistent in height and breadth, forcing them to duck and crawl through certain sections. Also as before, it twisted and curled like a bent wire, pitching down, then sharply left, straight for a few feet, then a hairpin turn, followed by a steep climb. 
they crept ahead steadily, becoming ever more aware of the crushing weight of the mountain on top of them. Even the dwarves were uncomfortable in such crowded conditions, especially those in the middle of the line who had people right in front and right behind them. If anything happened, there would be nowhere to go. Umura felt as though they had been navigating the tunnel for an hour. In reality, it had been less than 20 minutes since they entered the second NKEG tube. She wasn't getting used to the cramped spaces. In fact, quite the opposite. She was getting worse. She had considered asking Tereg to return her lantern several times, but, with effort, had refrained. Instead, she calmed herself by imagining every detail of the natural sanctuary Raydel had shown them several days before, the place where Aradine had found her elven sword. It worked, more or less. Still, by the time the tunnel ended and deposited them into a new space, she felt positively sick with claustrophobia. Girios looked gray, too, she saw. His pallor was not improved by what they were seeing now. If the last cavern was a food storage space for the Ankeg, this one must be their hatchery. Weird, waxy pods of some kind of unknowable organic material were attached to the walls. These capsules each contained a single, naked, dwarven body. There were five in all. Four of them sprouted bearded half-faces. They poked out through the waxy stuff that covered their eyes, neck, and everything above and below. Their mouths were open, but full of a glistening, yellowish slime that was also present on the floor and walls. It had a pungent stink to it, and dripped to the floor in sticky strands. The fifth capsule contained nothing but white bone fragments and red gore and gristle. There was nothing that vaguely resembled the dwarf inside it any longer. Three translucent white creatures with dozens of legs moved about under the waxy skein, feeding on the remains. Girios found that he could not bear to look upon it, so he concentrated on the other four. He thought he noticed movement from one, and when he looked again, saw a bubble of slime form and pop on one of the dwarves' mouths. They aren't dead, he blurted. What? Harl said, moving to get a closer look. They aren't dead, repeated Girios, though he knew Harl had heard him. I think they are still breathing. Harl walked up to the closest and leaned his face right up to the unmoving dwarf. By the stones, Girius, you are right, he exclaimed. We should dig them out. Wait a moment before you do that, said Tarek, who had come to stand beside Harl and was shining the light from Umora's lantern so they could see better. With the light up close, they could discern the faintest rise and fall of the dwarf's chest. Why would we wait a moment longer, asked Harl. They'll be weak and will need a lot of care when we free them, if they can survive at all, Tarek guessed. It would be better if we finished what we came to do first and then go back for them. Otherwise, we'll have to leave some of our number behind to attend them. Hmm. Harl reconsidered. That is true. Fine, we'll come back for them. If you needed another reason not to die when we get to the end of these tunnels, now you've got four more. As he said the word tunnels, he pointed ahead. There was another twisting passage, just like the ones before, bored into the firewall. They climbed in, and somehow Harl knew that they must be getting close. This tunnel was much shorter than the others. It only took a few minutes before it widened out like a funnel, and then opened into a huge natural cavern, at least 200 feet in diameter. Thin, spear-like stalactites pointed straight down from the ceiling, and fat, lumpy stalagmites grew up from the floor. Some of them reached a height of a dozen feet or taller. 
In three places, the two met and formed massive hourglass-shaped columns from floor to ceiling. The same slime from the hatchery was present inside the final tube. It was present here as well, in wet patches on the floor and dripping down the cavern walls. The light from the lantern reflected off it, making it glisten like liquid gold. Umor's lantern was bright, but its glow did not quite reach the far end of the massive cavern, and that is why they heard the Ankeg well before they saw them. Weird clicks and trills came from that faraway darkness. When Tarek pulled the hood off Umura's lantern all the way back, they finally beheld their foe. Are you tired of tracking your encumbrance, counting your torches, and having to roll reactions, and actually talking to creatures in the dungeon rather than just killing them? Me neither. Come on over to Cleric's Wear Ringmail. Blogside, you'll find maps and adventures free to download for your OSR game. Reviews of actual play podcasts, channels, and streams to help expand your gaming horizons. And occasional rants, raves, and rules to help explain and expand your D&D experience. Over on the podcast, simulcast on YouTube with the occasional actual play of my own. You'll find interactive debate about OSR and RPG topics unboxing reviews of gaming products, and the occasional interjection of a pair of toddlers. I'm Cleric's Wear and I endorse this message. Delve on, listeners. Delve on. Chapter 58 Part 2 Day 71 Several hours before dawn Party status the party status is unchanged, with the single exception of Kyrios, who has used his spell of Bless. There were six of the giant worker ankegs. Each was twenty feet of reddish-brown chitin and scything jaws. Genetically, there was little more to them than blades and armor. They were fearsome, but the thing behind them was an abomination. The Queen of the Hive was enormous, easily twice the size of her largest soldier, but then she appeared to have no natural weapons and wore a soft membrane for a skin. Like a colossal grub, she writhed and groped the air with a multitude of tiny feet. The soldiers were packed in a tight cluster before her. It was clear they were protecting their queen. Even when the party's light spilled over them and filled the rear half of the cavern, they did not attack. They made no aggressive movements at all. The warband spread out in a line, and Tarig ordered the crossbow archers to raise their weapons. Eridine likewise knocked an arrow to her bow. Aim for the workers, ordered the captain. On his command, they fired a volley into the shiny armored mass. Three rolls. An eight. A four. A twelve. The projectiles all bounced harmlessly off the Ankeg's shells, but still, they did not attack. They swayed their heads back and forth, chirruping strange noises at the party. Harl began to understand something. The creatures had fallen back here to protect their queen, and had put all the strength in this one place. There were only six workers, and the queen left in the whole colony, he realized. He thought about the two hunters that they had killed, and all the dead Ankeg they had passed in the battle chamber. He thought about the three disgusting larvae in the hatchery. Of course. They were trying to rebuild their numbers. Harl could remember Tarek mentioning that the Ankeg had probed their position several times, but he said that they had been driven back. 
Well, Terra could be mistaken about that. They had not been driven back. They had simply been buying time. Time for their queen to replenish their numbers. Terrig had been outwitted by this queen, and, strange but true, her strategy would have worked had his small party not come along. The colony would have grown to full strength while the dwarves slowly dwindled day by day. He was about to share this revelation, but was cut off by the captain who ordered the archers to fire again! Two more quarrels and another one of Aradine's arrows shot across the cavern. It would be impossible to miss their targets, but getting through their armor was another thing altogether. Three rolls. An 11. An 18. A 1. The first missile was turned away as the others had been, but the second punched through. There was a hiss of pain, or possibly defiance, in response. Aridine's shot somehow managed to miss the workers entirely and sailed right through their midst. It struck the queen, who reared back and roared in outrage. The attitude of the workers reversed completely and instantly. As one, they charged. Here they come, said Harl. Face death. Head on. Entering combat. A quick reminder that I've made some changes to the NKEG stats and description. So if you're familiar with any of the versions from various different editions of D&D, you might not get exactly what you're expecting. I'll post detailed changes on telleofthemanticore.blogspot.com soon, but here's all you really need to know. These worker ankegs have seven hit dice, an AC of two, and score three to 18 points of damage on a hit. That's a lot of armor and a lot of damage. Come to think of it, it's the same amount caused by the scything blade trap in Blacknail's vault, and that thing cut a goblin in half. Fortunately, and despite what's implied in various official bestiaries, these creatures do not grapple or score automatic damage after a hit, but must roll each round. The queen, by the way, will not attack. She does have one defensive ability, but we'll talk about that when and if it becomes relevant later on. To deal with the ankeg, Tarig's force of dwarves will form into groups of five, with each group taking on a single ankeg. That leaves two for the companions to deal with. The dwarves have an AC of four and are all level two, except for Tarig and Garrett, who are twice as tough as the rest at level four. This battle is a last stand kind of situation, so it's unlikely that I'll be using morale. I think this will be do or die. Now, I haven't rolled for hit points because for the most part, I don't intend to use them in this battle. Instead, I'm going to use only the hit dice. There are way too many combatants to run a normal combat and make it work on a podcast. I am going to roll initiative and attack rolls, however. A successful hit will do one hit die of damage when the dwarves are attacking and two hit dice when the ankeg are. That means whenever an ankeg hits, it will automatically kill most targets. As for the PCs, it's going to be a regular combat, and these other four battles can be thought of as taking place in the background. I need to determine the hit points for the two ankegs attacking the companions. Let's see. 37 hit points and... 42. Oof, these are big ones. One final thing before melee begins. I'm going to allow archers and spellcasters to take one action. This is because it will take a few seconds for the ankegs to cross the cavern and reach them. Here we go. The two crossbow archers need a 17 to hit the Ankeg's AC of 2. Eridine, after her bonuses, will need a 14. Here are the rolls for Migi and Hidari. I got a pair of 7s. No good. Eridine will take her shot. An 8. Bad luck. Gyrios, unfortunately, wasted his spell of bless earlier on, 
So that just leaves Umora. You can bet she's going to use Lightning Bolt. This spell might well mean the difference between winning and losing the fight. I'll rule that she can hit 1-2 worker ankegs with the spell, but since the queen is so large and right behind them, there's a chance she'll be caught up in the spell too. First I'll roll to see how many of the workers are hit. High and low. High is 2, low is 1. Low. Only one will be hit. That's not good. Another high-low to see if the queen is also in the path of the spell. High is yes. A 14. She is. That means I need to roll for the queen's hit points, but she's only got three hit dice. Rolling 3d8. Okay, I've got a 17. Now I need to roll damage and saving throws. The damage for a lightning bolt is 5d6. Here we go. Fingers crossed. 16 points. Ugh, that is pretty weak. Finally, the two saving throws. The worker needs a 12, and the queen needs a 16. Here's the roll for the worker. 17. Damn it. This is not going well. It takes just 8 points of damage, knocking it down to 29 hit points. Now for the queen's save. A 7 is a fail, and the queen goes down to 1 hit point. You know, I think that might change things where morale is concerned. The queen's distress calls would definitely have an effect on her soldiers, maybe even more than if she were killed outright. I'll make the call later and see if it makes sense to roll for morale. Well, finally, it is time to begin. Round 1. Initiative. The party and the dwarves. A 6. The ankegs. A 5. Side battle number 1. 5 dwarves versus 1 ankeg. The ankeg suffers no hits. It retaliates, needing only a 9 to hit. A 13. The first dwarf to take a swing at it is trampled to death, making for a very inauspicious start to the battle. Side battle 2. 5 dwarves versus 1 ankeg. The ankeg suffers 2 hits. That's more like it. It's reduced to 5 hit dice. It fights back. A 4 is a miss. Side battle 3. 5 dwarves versus 1 ankeg. This is the ankeg that was struck by a quarrel before battle began, so it begins with six hit dice. It suffers one hit and is reduced to five hit dice. The counterattack? A hit. A dwarf is caught up in its mandibles, and the life is crushed from his body in the blink of an eye. Side battle four. The captain, Garrett, and three dwarves versus one ankeg. The captain and Garrett attack. There's one hit there, and now the other three dwarves. Another hit. This ankeg now has five hit dice. It returns the attack. A 19. Miki's head is neatly snipped off. Now for the main battle. Eridine is first. She needs a 14 to hit. With the 12, I'll say that she throws her bow to the side, but cannot get her longsword out in time to aim her strike, and misses. Girios is next. He also needs a 14 to hit. Natural 20. For 12 points, Gyrios slams his mace over the bug's head and cracks the shell. A good start, but it still has 30 hit points left. Harl is up. He only needs a 13 to hit. An 18. 10 points. I love Harl. He always rolls well for damage. Harl shears off a leg, and whitish goop showers all four of them. Now his opponent only has 19 hit points. Umura is teamed with Harl against the second Ankeg. She'll need to get an 18 to hit. She's got a 7. Umura can't even get close enough to touch it with her little blade. 
Now it's the Ankeg's turn. I'll pick targets at random. The first will go for Eridine or Gyrios. It's Eridine. It needs an eight to hit her. A seven. She twists out of the way of the huge mandibles that snap shut over the air where she was standing. The second Ankeg attacks. Harl. Well, I guess that's lucky. It needs an 11 to hit him. An 18 hits. This could be a lot of damage. Rolling 3d6. Two ones and a three is just five points. Harl got very lucky there. The creature bashes him and he staggers back. But he returns to the fight in just a few seconds. Is that all you've got? Round one went about as well as could be hoped, but let's see if that good luck will continue. In round two, initiative. The party and the dwarves. A one, the ankegs. A five. Oh boy, here we go. Side battle one, the ankeg attacks. Okay, a one. That's good news. I think the queen has cried out in pain once again, and the ankeg is distracted. It will miss its next turn because of this critical fail. The remaining four dwarves retaliate. Only one hit, but it's a 20. That'll count as two hits, taking this creature down to five. Side battle two, the Ankeg. A nine, not a good roll, but good enough to kill yet another dwarf. This time it's poor Will Hallam, who's lifted into the air by his legs, until with a wet crunch, the mandibles come together, severing them both. The remaining dwarves fight back. Unfortunately, there are no hits. Side battle number three, the Ankeg. An eight is a near miss. The dwarves. One hit. That brings this monster down to four hit dice. Side battle four. The Ankeg has a 14. Yet another dwarf is trampled into the floor and crushed by the monster's weight. This is the captain's group. In retaliation, Garrett is the only one to land a blow. And now this Ankeg has four hit dice as well. Now for the main battle. As before, the Ankegs will pick targets at random. The first goes for Gyrios, and a 10 will hit him. I've rolled a seven. Gyrios brings his shield up in time and knocks the pincer-like mandibles to the side. The second Ankeg attacks. Harl again. It needs an 11 to hit him. A three. Boy, that was lucky. The companions have a good chance here to inflict some real damage. Let's hope they don't screw it up. Eridine has her sword ready now and needs a 14 to hit. She's got a 17. She finds a chink in the chitinous armor and rams her elven blade into it. Five points of damage. Gyrios is up. He needs a 14 to hit. He's got a 15. Once again, he brings his mace down. Four. Ah, crap. Only two points. Harl takes his swing. An eight is a miss. And although she has almost no chance, Umura tries as well. A 13 is yet another miss. That's it for round two, but round three will have to wait until next time. I hate to stop a battle in the middle of an episode, but if I try and finish this, this episode will go for at least another 15 minutes. So, with my apologies, if you can wait just 10 more days, we'll see how this plays out in the next episode. Until then. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show, this month there is one very special way that you can help to support it. Have you ever heard of the Ennies? It's an award given both to the best actual play podcast of the year and the best RPG talk show of the year. 
If you have the time and inclination to help out, I'd very much appreciate if you would go to enworld.org and vote for the show. I've been nominated in the category of Best Actual Play. Thanks to everyone who has already voted, and for those of you that do so. As always, I'd like to read out one of your kind reviews. This one is from the Podbean app. RP Galore writes, This is by far my favorite podcast. The mix of a dark fantasy story and game mechanics makes this a joy to listen to. This is the kind of game I have always wanted to play in. Keep up the amazing work and wonderful storytelling. You have a lifelong fan here. You had me at favorite podcast, RP Galore. Seriously though, this is the kind of review that makes my whole day. Thanks so much for writing that. Is it weird to say that Tale of the Manticore is also the game that I have always wanted to play? You know, you sacrifice certain things when you play solo, but you gain some things too. You get to build the game world that you want to play in without compromise. Eventually, I'll go back to the table with friends, but I won't be giving up my solo game, that's for sure. And speaking of solo gamers, returning to the show as Captain Torig Slinghitch is Steve Morrison of the Errant Adventures Solo RPG Podcast. Seriously, if you're into solo stuff, check that out. Also returning, Hodag RPG of Hodag.itch.io, playing Garrett Magger, proprietor of the Dead Troll Tavern and all-around badass. For listeners who'd like to get in touch, you can contact me on Twitter at Manticore Tale or on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com where I post art, character sheets, maps, and other stuff. The story will continue in the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Few things inspire you to create your own campaign more than hearing a bunch of friends enjoying theirs. But where do you start? Here at Undercommon Taste, we discuss tabletop gaming and homebrew content, as well as diving into the concepts of world building, content creation, game balance, and various DM tips. We focus mainly on 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, but most of our advice can be taken into any system. We dive into the existing lore of older editions, discussing the impact of bringing old, sometimes forgotten, lore into the current edition to bring your campaign worlds to life. We also host various game and game systems creators to get a sample of up-and-coming projects and to get their take on how to bring something unexpected and new to the table. So join us for Undercommon Taste, where we stir the pot and lick the spoon. Available wherever you find your podcasts.